0: We uh, we've got a lot to cover this morning um, and so I'm just gonna get right to the point we're starting we're in week six of a series on mountains. Uh, by the way, this series ends on Easter Sunday, uh, but we're week six on a series on mountains, and we're looking at these different mountaintop experiences throughout Scripture, and today's actually our last week we will be in the Old Testament. We've been in the Old Testament since January, which I think is kind of fun, uh, and then we'll, we'll transition to the New Testament next week. And so uh, this week, we're at a very famous passage, passage in First Kings uh, chapter 18, if you want to find it in your, on your digital device or in your Bible. But let me just—I just, just so you can see the storyline. I want you to be able to see the storyline as we go through these mountaintop experiences. It would just kills me to not to not show these to you. Although every sermon could stand alone, I think it's really cool to see the history of Israel in these sermons. Um, I put this—I found this on the internet or whatever that works for. So, uh, but this is this is just kind of a some. Some words and some dates to kind of help you as I go through this um, right here. But we started with Abraham and Isaac and the, that mountaintop experience where Abraham was asked to give up his one and only son Isaac. And you see that's about 1800 years before Christ. And that's where that one, two, three, fourth arrow on the bottom is Abraham for those of you in the back. From there we saw, um, we saw the nation of Israel grow through the children of I- really Abraham, but Isaac has Jacob and Esau, and Jacob's name is changed to Israel. Israel has the 12 sons, become the 12 tribes, and we really see it's from Jacob that the nation of Israel is grown and really produced, and so they grow up to be about a million strong. During a famine, they, they hightail it to Egypt, to a nice little suburb out there in Egypt um, with, you know, great water and uh, really nice people, um, but they're, they're kind of the riff riffraff out of town, you know, and, uh, and so uh, it turns out they get too big, and the government's not very comfortable with how big they are. So he enslaves them and builds giant pyramids that we still go visit today. And so Israel's doing that. They cry out because uh, the government issues uh, abortion and genocide over the nation of Israel. And so they cry out to God and God uh, sends a man named Moses back to the place where he was born, back to Egypt where he was an adopted son at 80 years old. Uh, And that happens through the burning bush on top of a mountain, Mount Sinai. He saves the people of Israel. He brings them back into the desert to go worship God at the mountain of God, also known as Mount Sinai. It's on that mountain that we see the Ten Commandments are given. And the, you know, for the most part, most of you know that part of the story, but then it, it sh- you know, we kind of lose track after that. <laughs> so after the book of Deuteronomy, the first five books of your Bible, you have Moses died, and the new, the new leader is Joshua. That's the next book. And Joshua begins the campaign to bring the people into the promised land of, of God, the land that's promised to Abraham. But there's a problem. There's some Canaanites there. So there's lots of war and battle and stuff like that. We looked at a mountain there as well because um, it's there where the people of Israel recommitted their lives, recommitted their, their lives to the word of God, the commandments of God after their loss in AI. And so uh, we see another significant mountaintop experience happen there as well. After Joshua comes Judges. The book of Judges, we looked at that last week with uh, Deborah, and what a dark, dark book that is, because Israel is kind of at this crossroads. There are people, they're organized, and then they're they're in this country full of false gods, and so there's, there's constant temptation and tension going on with them. They didn't wipe out the gods they were, like they were supposed to, and so they're, they're constantly falling in and out of favor with God, and so he sends judges to bring them back into right standing and to free them from their slavery under the, uh, the false gods. At, at the end of Judges and at the end of Ruth, we have um, the people say, um, well, what rises up is a prophet, and his name is Samuel. And Samuel becomes a great leader of the people of Israel. He is a high priest and prophet, and he, he leads Israel, and that's the book of 1 Samuel. In 2 Samuel, Israel requests, they say, they say Israel's like a teenager. <laughs> so they say, we want a king like everybody else. They, they got a king, and their mom gave them a king, and their dad gave them a king. Why can't I have a cell phone? I mean, a king. Why can't? Why can't I have a car? I mean, a king. I mean, so this is kind of like this. We want to be like everybody else. And so they request the king, and God says, I'll give you a king. He's going to, you're going to hate this. That's what he says. You're not going to like this. He's going to do this. He's going to do this. He's going to raise taxes. He's going to raise taxes. He's going to raise taxes. He's going to raise So pretty much what kings do. And so here's a king, and they give him Saul. They vote for Saul because he's tall, he's handsome, he's big, he's strong, and he's a knucklehead. He's just spiritually inept. Right? He's no clue what's going on, right And so Saul becomes the king of Israel. Saul is a horrible king. And then, so as you know, the rightful king that Samuel blesses or anoints is King David. He's small. He's short. He's a shepherd. He stinks. But he's smart. He's wise. He loves God with all of his heart. And so after Saul Saul dies, um, King David becomes the king. And then King David, David, he has uh, Solomon with Bathsheba. Um, and they, and Solomon becomes the next king. King David was a great man, a great general. And if you look at the, kind of the history of Israel, um, he led Israel in these incredible campaigns and expanded the influence of Israel so great, mainly by military power. He's like the first Alexander the Great. I mean, he's that kind of level military prowess. Israel is the powerhouse. They are the America... Of that time. I mean, they are the superpower nation. Everybody feared Israel, everybody respected Israel. King Solomon, however, is not the military genius that his dad was. He is a um, political genius. And he expands not the not necessarily the land of Israel, but the influence of Israel, which is also something Alexander the Great did with Greece. He expanded Hellenism. Sorry to throw all those into you. But uh, so, so Solomon expands Israel even greater. But both of these men were horrible fathers. And uh, Solomon um, had many kids, and, uh, and one, the kid that he has that becomes king, his name is Rehoboam. And uh, when Solomon dies and his son becomes king, he meets, the, he meets with the council, he meets with the old guys. And they're trying to give him advice on what the new, uh, the new era of Israel is going to look like. And he says something, it's pretty graphic uh, in the Bible, but he pretty much says, um, my stones are bigger than my dad's stones. Like, I'm bigger, I'm tougher than my dad. You know, Again, teenager. I'm just kidding, I love teenagers. But you know, he's just kind of like, I'm the, I'm the tough guy here, right? So he's kind of like... That, this that guy and and he pushes Israel even harder and causes a split and it divides the nation in between north and south. I promise this is all leading somewhere. Okay, so here's north and south Israel. Uh, the uh, I turned it sideways so you could see it better. But the north is <laughs> stop it. We're on a budget. Okay, so the north is this way. It's Israel. It's called Israel. I wish it wasn't because it really is confusing. It took me graduating with a master's to understand some of it. And so Israel is this way. Um, The place in question today is Mark Carmel. It's right there, okay? And then Judah is over here. Now, the reason it's confusing is because Judah, in Judah is, there you see the Dead Sea, there's Jerusalem. So Judah has Jerusalem. So Jerusalem's not in Israel. It's It's just so confusing. Could you guys have figured out a better way to explain that, like North and South, or Confederates and, you know, whatever. So anyway, so what happens is Judah stays kind of faithful more often as the divided kingdom. They stay kind of close to God because they got Jerusalem, they got the temple, right? And so they're, they're doing the thing. Israel, it sounds weird to say it that way, the northern part, they get really insecure all the time because they can't get over to the temple because it's in the other kingdom. Why can't y'all just get along? And so since they can't do that, they create high places, and they start to follow other gods more often than Judah. In the end, they both fail, and they both go away to Babylon. Now, that is our, that's our landscape for today in first kings. The books of first and Second Kings are all about these kings who rise and fall into the North, back and forth, back and forth, here they go. And so here, we're, we're at a really, really dark time in the book of First Kings, where Israel, this northern part, has become very insecure. And they are following a God named Baal, who is very famous throughout scripture. Okay. 1 Kings 18 is long. Okay. So here's the first 17 verses. Don't even have to look. Here you go. There's a famine in the land. God tells Elijah to go present himself to King Ahab of Israel. Okay. God used circumstances to get the attention of the people. And when they don't get the message, he sends a prophet that's the deal. Elijah's the good guy. Ahab's the bad guy. Let's do this, all right? So that's, the, that's, the, that's the, the context. There's a bunch of stuff in there. If you want to go reread it or go read it later, we'll make the origin story another day. Okay. 1 Kings 18 verses 17 through 18. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab, King Ahab, said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. So, uh, for those of you familiar with this passage, it's a very famous passage. It's a lot of people's favorite passage in the whole Bible. Um, but we see the beginning of this tension. Here comes the prophet, the lone prophet, Clint Eastwood, walking down the dusty streets you know, of Israel. Here he comes, and, uh, and he says, Oh, you're the trouble, you're the reason. All this is, you're the reason we haven't had rain in three years. You're the problem with everything in our culture, in our world, religious man. And the religious man, prophet says, no, 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 you're the problem. You're the reason we don't have rain. You're the reason that God has held back the winds. You're the reason that things are so wrong in this world. You're the problem. Kind of sounds, sounds distant, right? Nobody talks like that anymore, right? We don't say that to each other, right? No, it's, it's actually very, very common. Um, today we were we are we dealing with the same thing. We hear from people all the time in the news and media and movies and other sources that Christians are the problem with the world. If you guys would just stop being so religious, if you would stop clinging to your Bibles, if you would stop clinging to your religion and your old-fashioned ways and get with the program, this world would be a much better place. Chris the late Christopher Hitchens, famed atheist journalist, not a scientist, not a mathematician, not even an astronomer, just a journalist. You know, and journalists are always right. <sighs> Sorry, he's dead. I shouldn't pick on him. Um, but he is. Uh, he wrote a book called "God Is Not Great" and "God Is Not Good," saying that the problems with all the things—I think it's a, it a bestseller—all the problems of the world can go back to one one source: God. And he wants to get rid of God. And there we see this battle, this present day battle between Ahab and Elijah, people who hate God and people who love God. And just back and forth we go. And so today, I want to take this passage on personally. I want us to say, okay, let's really look at it. Is there truth to this God? Let's do what Elijah does it comes to this situation when it comes to the truth of god and the reality of god and who's right and who's wrong let's really look at this with with open eyes and let's evaluate the evidence and come to a conclusion because that's what that's what elijah's about to do look at this verse 19 now therefore i'm going to prove it to you that i'm not the problem now therefore send and gather all israel to me at mount carmel not caramel That would be delicious. (laughs) Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Uh, so he says, okay, you think I'm the problem? I think you're the problem. Let's settle it once for all. Showdown at Mount Carmel. I have a picture of it. uh, I think, yep, that's actually, I took that picture from the top. Uh, I've been there twice. About to go a third time in a couple weeks. I love that place. It's amazing. There's no doubt about it. That's where it happened. Uh, that's an olive tree orchard. It's really hard to figure out where this took place because there's a lot of people up. That's going to happen. Where this is going to happen. It's pretty wooded. It's very beautiful, isn't it? That's actually the Valley of Armageddon, the Jezreel Valley. So that's where the end times will take place. Fun, fun, huh? Yeah. So uh, notice how green and beautiful it is there in the desert, which you thought was all dusty and gross. It's great. Um, no, no scud missiles coming at me or anything like that. No terrorist attacks. It's all safe and fine. Uh, there's a monastery over here, which is really cool, on this side of me, um, where you can see every single thing, loca- every single geographical thing mentioned in 1, 1 Kings 18, you can see from that monastery. And they tell you where it is as, you, as you're standing there. It's, a, it's an amazing place to, to visit. You should come with me sometime. So, um, so, we have, so he says, Gather the, the prophets of Baal... At this place, at Mount Carmel, I and mean, here's what's amazing about this. So the the 400 prophets of Baal, or the 450 prophets of Baal, shows one that Baal has really infiltrated Israel. Like you don't have 450 priests for a God unless He's really, you know, He's really there. Imagine if we left here um, and every every cross street there was a a psychic stand, right? You would say, "Wow, Steamboat has really given into the psychic thing." You would, right? Imagine if you were in the south and you drove down the street and on every block there's a church because it's true right that you say wow the south has really given in to christianity i mean you you would just say that right and so so here that's the same kind of thing you're driving down the road or riding riding your donkey down the road and there's 450 spots to go worship baal because they have really given in to baal and not only that they've given in to this other person who's not very much mentioned very often in this story but the 400 prophets of asherah she is the let me use this term loosely spouse of baal but they have connected her to Yahweh, to God, to, to the Lord of the Old Testament. And she's kind of like, she's kind of like, uh, just bear, I say this in love, she's kind of like what the Catholic Church did with Mary. It kind of made her like this, this deity with God, thing, this made her up. And once you kind of opened your eyes to Asherah, you could kind of be kind of, T- take it. Oh well, is married to Baal, and then it would kind of lead you away from Yahweh to Baal. She was the bridge to lead you away from, from the Yahweh, from God. So this is a very de- deceptive religion, very deceptive thing that they were doing. But here's what's significant about Mount, Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel was believed to be the resting spot of Baal. When, so when El- Elijah tells Ahab, "Let's meet on Mount Carmel and test this," Ahab's being like home court advantage. Done. Yes. I got the home team. I got everybody with me. And that's his house. So sure, let's do that. And the test that's going to happen, remember the test, it's going to be, let's see if we can set this bull on fire with the air, right? See whose fire comes and consume it. Baal is the god of storm. All he has to do is strike it with lightning. If Elijah really wanted to win, he would put it indoors down low somewhere far away from Mount Carmel because then he couldn't strike it with lightning. He could strike this thing with lightning, and Ahab's going to be like, this is so easy. I'm going to slam dunk you. I'm going to be a LeBron James all over you, right? Literally, he is, because he's going to totally fail. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to be to all- I'm <laughs> not going good for the Lakers, just saying. Okay, so <laughs> go, go Rockets. Um, so he's saying, he's saying, listen, this is no problem at all, right? We got, we got this. But here's, here's, here's kind of the sub- something we want to talk about. Elijah is willing. Now, he does it in a, he does it in a sassy kind of way, as we'll see. But Elijah is willing to take on and understand and listen and comprehend other religions. He is, not, he is outnumbered, outmanned, outgunned, and he's not afraid. Just a little side note. Elijah, if you, when you read more about Elijah... He is extremely introverted. Any introverts in the room? No, you're not going to raise your hand because you're introverted, right? <laughs> He's extremely introverted, very quiet, deals with anxiety and depression. He, deals with, he, is a, he is a man in every way. He struggles. He's not perfect. He's not some spiritual giant, right? But he knows, I've been called by God to do this. And even the things he says are very short. It's like an introvert. I was going to say a couple lines. That's it. Not preachy like an extrovert, right? But he's extreme. So, but even with that, he says, I know what I'm supposed to do and I'm not afraid. My friends, we don't need to be afraid of other religions. I see this too often where we get afraid of other religions, and that leads to two different paths. One, it leads to ignorance, or it leads to hatred. And both are bad. We don't need to fear this showdown. We can embrace it because our God is bigger. Our God is greater. So we don't need to be ignorant about other religions, and we don't need to be hateful towards other religions because there's no threat to us. I hope today you come to that conclusion as well. Verse 21. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. So make your choice. And the people did not answer him a word. So he says, how long are you going to go along? In fact, the, the Hebrew says, how long are you going to use these two crutches? Right? How long are you going to have Baal on one side and God on the other side? And so he's, he's pointing out something pretty profound. You, you're weaker when you have multiple gods, multiple options. You are not stronger. You're actually weaker in this way. For example, and I'm not going to name any gods here today except ours, right now i will later but one guy's going to say go kill go kill in my name and you will be glorified another guy's going to say go make peace with all men one guy's going to say go have multiple wives another guy's going to say only have one one guy's going to say in my heaven you have to do to get there you have to do five different things or three different things or follow this path or do this stuff the other one's going to say it's by grace alone so you have, so you, you really, which God are you going to follow in which circumstance? It's like, you're kind of like, what do I do, right? I, you probably have never seen this before, but have you ever seen that bumper sticker that says coexist? <laughs> yeah, it's like one and two cars, right, in Steamboat, right? <laughs> it's like, yeah. Listen, coexisting is a good thing. I'm for coexistence, right? Because if not, one of us dies. So coexist fine, right? And I'm all for respecting other religions. I think that we have to do that. I think, in fact, we need to respect the right for any religion to gather because that's, that's the freedom of religion. We're a country built on that, not the freedom of Christianity, the freedom of religion. So we have to allow for other religions to gather, and we need to respect that. That's a fine and good thing, right? But that's not what the, that's not what the bumper sticker saying, is it? I mean we could all wear coexist for that purpose, right? That's Christianity. But the bumper sticker's saying, "No, no, no. Believe all these roads lead to the same place." But the logical man has to look at that and go, "That can't make sense." That doesn't make any sense at all. They don't all lead to the same place. They don't even all get there the same way. One steps, one's a ladder, one's a jump, one's a cry. I mean, it's nothing more you can't do that. And so that's what that's what Elijah's saying. You have you're you're limping. You're you're on crutches. You you're not you're not full strength when you're you're divided all the time. You're still trying to figure out what God's want. Make your choice. Is it Buddha? Is it Muhammad? Is it Jesus? Make your choice. Stop limping around trying to figure it out, and then go with that choice. <clears throat> Verse 22. Then Elijah said to the people. I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. In other words, I'm the only one. I'm it. I'm outgunned, outmanned. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, lowercase g, And I will call upon the name of the Lord, Lord, uppercase L, and the God who answers, uppercase G, just making sure you got your G's right, okay, (laughs) who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well-spoken. They're like, yeah, this is what we do. We sacrifice bulls. And we lay them on the altars, and so, yeah, this is, a, this is a good plan. In fact, the, the altar, the way is, the, the picture is this, that you would prepare the bull as almost you're preparing a meal for your God. And you would slaughter it and skin it and get it all ready, and you lay it on the altar, and the altar is a table for the God to come and consume the sacrifice. And in doing so, he is intimate with you during the sacrificial moment. He's like having dinner with you. That's, what the, that's the picture that, the, that these ancient people practiced. And so this is a very common thing for them. And so they're like, yeah, we totally get that. It shouldn't be a problem. Got a storm on our side We're on Mount Carmel. This should all work out just fine. This is what the prophets tell us all the time, right? Verse 25. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first for you are many and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire on it. <clears throat> and they took the bull and uh, that was given them. They prepared it, called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon from the time the sun rose until lunch, right? Long time. Oh, Baal, answer us. Oh, Baal, answer us. Oh, Baal, answer us. Oh, Baal, answer us. Ha! Oh, bail! answer us. Ha! Oh, bail! answer us. Ha! Oh, bail! Over and over and over again. They're just doing the conga, crying out. Right? right, you'll see it in a second. It says, and they did the conga. You'll see it. But there was no voice, and no one answered, and they limped. That's the word "kanga" in Hebrew. <laughs> around the altar that they had made, limping is a kind of a play on words. How long will you limp between two crutches? Um, it, it really, it literally, it's danced. So they're dancing around this altar, crying out to Baal over and over and over again. And there is no sound. No one answers, as you'll know, as you'll notice. Verse twenty-seven. And at noon, the introvert gets extroverted. Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry louder. He is God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps asleep and must be awakened. Musing means he's deep in thought. He's gone. It's kind of like this. Relieving himself is he is taking a poo. <laughs> he is going to the bathroom, right? And it's a long one. He's got the paper, and he's traveling. Maybe he's on vacation. I mean, this is—he's mocking them, right? I don't recommend this part, right? It's prophet, right? or he's sleeping. Poor deity is so sleepy. Is your deity sleepy? I mean, to say it's that kind of—I mean, it's, whew, it's so funny to read, but don't do it, okay? So they, just like Zeus, just like Thor, just like all those ancient gods, they had these human characteristics. And so, with these human characteristics, that Baal had them too. And so, Elijah's just harping on them. You gave him those characteristics. Why don't I just make fun of him for it? Uh, um, what I love, and I just wrote this there's nothing human about Christianity. I love that about us. I love that about following Jesus. There's, no human makes up the Ten Commandments. Lo, you know, only have one God. At that time, nobody says that. That was profound. Uh, respect your parents. Come on, nobody says that, right? Don't commit adultery at that time? Nobody's saying that. Those things are, you're saying, oh yeah, we would. No, you're saying that now because you've been raised in a Christian country and you are ingrained with a moral standard of the Ten Commandments. You don't write those on your own free will in 2000 BC. You just don't. No no man makes up monogamy. No man makes up grace. We like to work for our religion, right? No man makes up substitutionary atonement. In fact, it offends most people. The idea that somebody would die for your sins, it offends most atheists. No man makes that up. It is not man-made. It's divine. Verse 28. And they cried louder and cut themselves, which was the custom. They're desperate. After their custom with swords and lances until blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. There was no fire. I'm going to go quickly through these next verses. Verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me, offering the intimacy. And all the people came near to him. And this is thousands of people. It's tons of them. And they're gathered as close as they can to this altar that has been destroyed. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. So some vandals had gotten up there who were faithful to Baal and had knocked over the altar that was there for God. And so he is slowly, meticulously taking his time and putting. And he's going to make them watch every second of it. I'm going to put this altar back together. And the same way you tore it down, you're going to suffer watching me put it back together. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob. To whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. So here he takes these 12 stones, he puts them together, and he says, Israel is going to be your name again. You will be called Israel. He reminds them of who they are. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would uh, contain two uh, sess of seed. Don't worry about that stuff, just stay with me and he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood and he said fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood there's lots of stuff here lots of stuff i can talk about but we only have so much time so just stay with me verse 34 and he said do it a second time so they're dumping water on the off water did you know that water and fire don't mix very well Water puts out fire. Fire doesn't usually catch on to water unless you're at Disney. Somehow they do it. But other than that, water and fire don't go together. So dump some water on this. And everybody's like, oh, that's crazy. Do it again, second time. As they did it a second time, he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. So he's like, There's this, I'm, not even, he's like I'm not even worried. There's no test of divinity that's too great for God. Verse 35. And the water ran around the altar. He's like, aren't you glad we dug a trench? And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at that time, the offering uh, was the offering of oblation. Elijah the prophet came near and said, here it is, here's his sermon. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word, Answer me, O Lord. Contrast that with 450 prophets, student, the Conga crying out to God, right? And then you have this meek, introverted you know, man. Answer me, O Lord, that the people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and they have turned their that you have turned their hearts back. He's already foreseeing it. You're going to turn their hearts. This is this ends today. Verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed a burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water. He was thirsty in the trench. Verse 39. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. I would call that repentance. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, let none of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. I also don't recommend that. And Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is, a, there is the sound of rushing rain. Skip to verse 45. And a little while, the heavens grew black and the clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. The reason there was no rain was you, Ahab. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. The true God that day showed up and provided rain. So I want to apply this then with the time that I have remaining and proving to you the truth and the reality of our God. It starts with this philosophical question, is Baal real? You'd say, no. Good answer. What about Thor? Isn't that Chris Hemsworth? Yeah, he's an actor. He's also in Ghostbusters, so no. Right? What about Pharaoh? Do you believe Pharaoh is a real god? No, he's a man. Okay. How about Zeus? Didn't you study him in school? Is he a real god? You'd say, no, he's not a real god. He's called Greek mythology. Right? These are actually, uh, with the exception of Pharaoh, um, these are actually called gods of gaps. Gods of the gaps. It's a philosophical term It says during ancient times, there was a gap. When people didn't understand something natural, they created a god for it. It's gods of the gaps, right? Christianity is not a god of the gaps. It wasn't because we didn't understand something, right? Christianity is true, it's divine, as we'll see in a minute. Uh, these other gods are gods of the gaps. So when you see people comparing Christianity to gods of the gaps, it's not. Those are little bitty gods. And none of you believe in them, right? But how how judgmental of you. How come, Zeus, how come Thor's hammer doesn't get a, get a sign on the coexisting? He could be the T. Capital T. Hammer. Right? How come he doesn't get one? Well, Because it's ridiculous. Well, how dare... Again, you're just being so judgmental. How is it... You have just condemned all the people who worship those gods to your hell. Or whatever it is they go to. Because they're ridiculous. Right? And you just created... A religion. Congratulations. You just created your own system of beliefs, and now you have demonized one group and have sanctified another group. Right? And now, now it's like, okay, now what's the standard? Well, the standard is anything you want it to be, right? And here comes this crippled state that we're in where we can't decide what we're going to be. And, so it, and it goes back to this argument that you've heard the argument before, and I've made it to you before, but just to drive it in so you can make the argument. It's like the people who say, religion is like an elephant, right? It's like an elephant, and some people have the trunk, and some people have the tail, and some people have the leg, and they say, it's a snake, it's a tree, it's a toilet, right? Okay. It's a, whatever, I don't know. I forget what it is. So, you know, they, it's a vine, it's a tree, it's a snake, I think so how it goes, and then somebody has the ear, and, and they don't all see the elephant. The person telling you that illustration claims with his bachelor's degree to see the elephant, you see that? Like they're saying, all those religions, are all just holding a different part of the elephant, but you know, I failed out of school, but I see the whole elephant. Do you see what I'm saying here? They're claiming to have authority now because they see the whole elephant. So they're, now they've created a religion. You see how this just doesn't work? They can't all be the same. You must choose today. Who are you going to follow? Who's going to be your God? I, um, I meet regularly with a group called something. <laughs> Conversations of the Sacred or something like that. And, and we are all different. And uh, in fact, we have a public debate coming up on Mar- Not debate, discussion. We don't debate. We make that very clear. Uh, discussion on March 28th at the library, 6 o'clock, on the death of religion, how religion is in decline in America. Um, and so, we, uh, so it's Buddhist, in fact, it's the head of the Buddhist Center here in Simbo, uh, Muslim, and Jewish, and um, l- Christians who aren't are on the edge, really, from the Bible, um, and then Father Ernest, my, the Catholic priest, and me. Yeah, and uh, I'm the only one with a gun. And um, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> I don't even have my CHL, Um, so you know, you know, but you know, I'm I'm very much an outlier in this group, and there are times when we have these deep discussions, and sometimes I'm like, my head's like, I feel like I'm in philosophy class. I'm like, what are they talking about? You know, or I feel like I'm listening in on a on a bunch of college kids at a coffee shop who have no idea what they're saying. You know, I'm like, what is going on? You know, I'm like, what is this about? Right? Sometimes it's over my head. Sometimes it's deep, and sometimes Sometimes it challenges me. And I go get in my car, and I go, oh, I got spiritual vertigo. (laughs) I'm a little dizzy right now. (laughs) Okay, I know we can't all coexist, but I need to go through some things to kind of get my balance again. So I want to give you my three things to regain my balance. And then it allows for me to go, "Okay, so we were talking about heaven and hell. And I liked some of the things they said, but here's the problem with what they said, and here's why it says this, and here's okay." back on solid ground, right? Again, no fear. I'm not afraid of learning more about Buddhism. I've been pleasantly surprised with learning more about Islam. Very pleasantly surprised. Um, I'm not saying I'm becoming Islamic. I'm just saying it's been nice to kind of hear something different than violent Islam that the, that the news is always talking about. You know, and it's been, it's been nice to learn these things. And I like these people. I like them. Um, and so I, I, I enjoy spending time with them because it's a kind of engaging discussion. This is kind of the stuff I like, right? So I, don't, I would never want it to go away, but I can't, so I can't have fear, right? I can't be afraid of these conversations. So here's the three things I do. Number one, I ask myself, is there a God? First, let's get back to that. Scientifically, is there a God? Because Buddhists don't believe in God right? So I got to go back. Is there a God, right? So I got to come back to that. So here's one of my favorite examples of the proof of God. Actually, I didn't discover this. Um, This person did. His name is Sir Fred Hoyle. Sir Fred Hoyle was Britain's best-known mathematician and astronomer in the mid-1900s, so 1940s, 1950s. Uh, He spent decades searching for the answers to the questions of origins of life and the beginnings of the universe, um, he proposed the uh, what's called the steady-state theory. So, like, things have always been. In fact, that's very Buddhist. He, uh, that there's, there is no beginning, there is no end. It's just always the same. That's why in Buddhist things, you see a lot of circles. Uh, it's always, it's a constant, right? That's why Dr. Strange always has a circle. Okay, so, yeah. Um, so, there's, it's this constant steady-state thing. So, that was his proposal scientifically. I find it very uh, humorous that um, he... He said his steady state theory requires that you believe in a spontaneous appearance of hydro- hydrogen atoms from nothing that have always been there, but they spontaneously appeared. Anyway, you see the problem. So, but he held on to it and he would fight to the death for this. And, um, and he, he said the reason there cannot be a, a beginning to the universe, he says, because that would mean there's a creator. And he was a famed atheist and a devoted scientist. Problem, problem is astronomers at that time are saying, and and uh, and the guy who just died, I forget his name, um, the gravity theory kid, what's his name? Hawking's. Thank you, thank you, doctor. Um, he, he said uh, he he was saying, oh no, the the, the universe did start, and he, they're per- perpetuating it came from a black hole or something like that. But the universe does have a starting point, and the reason you can know it is because space is moving out. In fact, many even scientists are saying that today there's going to be a time that very much distant future where you won't see stars anymore because it's moving away. It's it's getting further and further away. So because it's doing that, it means something blew and it popped everything. So there had to be a beginning. Well, this problem is providing so much tension uh, with Sir Fred Hoyle because he's part of this astronomy group. And he had a nightly t- uh, BBC radio series called The Nature of the Universe. And Hoyle said something that stuck. In fact, many of, and he said it mockingly. And he said, there cannot be a big bang. Because if there's a big bang, that means there's a creator. I think it's hilarious, because we hear big bang, we think there wasn't a creator. No, there was a big bang. It was probably really big. And you're welcome that you weren't there for it, right? So he says there couldn't have been a big bang because Hoyle knew. If there's a big bang, there's a God. There's a creator. So he just fought it and fought it and fought it. And, of course, that term caught on. People love it. He had a way with words. Eventually, the evidence won, and Sir Fred Hoyle became a believer. Not a Christian, but he became a theist. He started to believe in God. And he wrote in 1981 a book called Evolution from Space, where he calculated the chance of, re- of obtaining the required set of enzymes for even the simplest living cell was 1 in 10 uh, was excuse me was 10 in thousandths possible it's, it's impossible is what he's saying it's a big number it's impossible right there's no way that this little bitty cell the cell that they knew in the 80s that we know even more about now that the cell could have been, been produced with the enzymes that it needed you know, by by chance it just could not have happened He wrote some great things. Hoyle wrote, The notion that not only the um, bipolymer, but the operating program of a living cell could be arrived at by chance in a primordial organic soup, you've probably heard that as well, on the earth is evidently nonsense of a high order. In other words, you sound like the biggest idiot saying that this happened by chance. That's what he's saying. This guy, atheist turned theist. He also wrote, "The random emergence of even the simplest cell to the likelihood that a, tor- um, excuse me, the random emergence of even the simplest cell is that is, is like that of a. Um, I'm trying to read this in English. It's <laughs> like that of a tornado sweeping through a junkyard and assembling a Boeing 747 from the materials therein. It's that crazy. He's like, this, you just wouldn't. That wouldn't happen. That's not even scientific. It just doesn't, it doesn't work that way. It's impossible." Um, Finally, he wrote this, Hoyle also compared the chance of obtaining even a single functioning protein by chance combination of amino acids to a solar system full of blind men solving solving a Rubik's Cube simultaneously. Hoyle eventually became a believer and trusted in the designer fine-tuning universe. Is there a God? Any scientist worth his salt not bound to the politics of modern science, but it really studies the evidence has to admit, yes, something started us. There is a beginner. There is a creator. You don't get this by accident. In the words of my daughter, Audrey, you don't get this sassy by accident. <laughs> she was talking to an atheist at school. I love her. Okay, <clears throat> he wrote this too, one last thing. A common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics. The, number one, um, the numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. Hoyle's like, you don't even have to question this anymore. There is a creator. There is a God. The book of Isaiah says this, thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread, them out um, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and the spirit to those who walk in it. Isaiah 42.5, even the Bible says, yes, there is a creator and he is your God. He is your Lord. Fine, Andrew, fine. There is a creator, but there's so many religions. How can you know your religion is right? I am so glad I asked myself that question number two which is the least likely to copy another religion which is the least likely to copy another religion the simplest answer is which one was first which religion is the oldest here that's the question which religion is the oldest i picked the four majors i threw out the gap religions because come on you don't struggle with that Mormonism, Islam, Hindu, Buddhism, Judaism, Christianity. They're, Hindu and Buddhism are connected in the same way, kind of the same way that Judaism and Christianity are connected. Okay? Mormonism started by Joseph Smith in the 1820s. It is, it's a babe. It's just a pup, right? And, um, and, so, and, and if, for those of you who are aware, have read the Book of Mormon or anything like that, you can see a lot of what I would call plagiaristic material. It just it seems to have copied Christianity and made it its own, and, and did its own thing, right? It's not a slight, I'm not trying to be mean, but it's obvious. Anybody who's willing to look at it with open, honest eyes, Mormonism seems to be a copy from another religion. So then you say, okay, well, I don't want the, I don't want, I don't want the GMO religions. I want the original, I want the organic. You with me on this? Um, and so Islam, Islam started 610 AD, that's 610 years after Jesus was when Islam started. Muhammad started Islam, um, and so now you're gonna gonna have to get into some history here. Um, so the re- the way we know that Islam is Islam is from a book called the Quran, and the Quran tells us its system of following Islam, right? So the Quran is the organizer. So when you can know Islam is true by when the Quran. Uh, was written and codified. Does that make sense? Are you still with me? It's apologetics here. We're getting a little deep, okay? So, and again, I go through these things, uh, it seems like in my head quickly, but so I'm trying to slow it down. So, the Quran was written in 610, around that era, A.D., 610 years after Jesus, A.D., uh, in the year of our Lord, okay? So, it was written during that time after Jesus. It, the oldest copy of the Quran that we know that it was written it was discovered actually recently, and it was written, or it was verified to have. To, we could see that you know that it was written in 704 A.D. So about a hundred years after the beginning of Islam, we have a copy of the Quran. It's, it, that's good. Happy for Islam on that. And it's about 704 A.D. Okay, okay. All that to say, then, if you read the Quran, you will also see some interesting features. One, that it copies a little bit of Judaism and its conquest and its forefather, Abraham. Uh, there's some copies of Judaism there. It also wages war in some places and offers salvation in others to Christians and Jews. So Christianity and Judaism are in this book and it seems to be a little, and I say this respectfully, a little plagiaristic. It seems to copy other religions. Oh, you have a tithe? Well, we have a 5%. Oh, you have a temple? Well, we have a Mecca. Oh, you, so, and it's just, you have, uh, to, you know, the golden rule, well, we're going to have something similar. So they have all these things that you do, right, that's very similar. They have a God, They and it wages war against the God of Christianity and Israel, right? So again, you have these, these this copy thing, and to me, that illegitimatizes it for me. I'm like, eh, it feels like a copy it doesn't feel legit. it doesn't feel sincere. I don't think my god's going to be bound up in that kind of stuff. I want to hear from God, the creator of the universe. Let's get older. Let's go to Hindu and Buddhism. Hinduism and Buddhism. Hinduism started in India. The oldest, so Hinduism and and Judaism are going to offer us an interesting twist. Hinduism is going to say Hinduism is uniquely tied to language, and I'll talk about that in a second. We don't get the, the codification, right? The codification of, of Hinduism until we get the, what's called the Vedas. And the Vedas is like their Bible. It tells you how to follow Hinduism and to keep the culture going, it's the organization of the religion. The oldest copy of the Vedas that we have is dated 90 AD. The best proof we have of Hinduism is still after Jesus. Now, we know from the temples and we know from history that it's older than that, right? So you could throw some other things, but the best proof we have of their written code is very young, about the time of Jesus. Uh, Buddhism started from that, uh, from Hinduism, and uh, it's kind of a, a branch of Hinduism, if you will, but they don't believe in a God and some other things, but we're not talking about theology or doctrines here. I just want to give you some of these proofs. So Hinduism, uh, will, they'll say, if you do some history, some studying, Hinduism was officially organized around 1500 B.C., although there's very little proof of that except for what's told to you in history books, right? 1500 B.C. And then Buddhism was organized around 500 years before Jesus, okay? <clears throat> Judaism and Christianity. Christianity is intricately connected to Judaism. You cannot separate the two, even though preachers try to do it. I don't know why. It's ridiculous. Uh, um, Christianity was started in 30 A.D. The oldest proof we have of the Bible is called P51. It is a copy of the Gospel of John, chapter 18. It's a very small fragment, and it dates to 90 A.D. It was probably written by John. We have an actual source of proof that our Bible was written, at least the Gospel of John, in 90 AD about as much proof as hindus have it's pretty amazing isn't it but it's tied to judaism uh, judaism predates anything all codification judaism because of the discovery of the dead sea scrolls in 1945 the oldest proof we have that judaism was codified is the book of isaiah and it is dated at 367 years before Jesus. Oh, I get chills. I love this stuff. Isn't that amazing? Three, that's science telling us this. It's 360 years before Jesus prophesying Jesus. Have you read the book of Isaiah? By his stripes you will be healed. He will hang on a tree. They pulled him by his beard. He he shall be born of a virgin. I mean Isaiah, thank you, God, for saving that one. I mean, if it was me, it would have been Genesis or Exodus, but no, no, no. You wanted to make sure the oldest copy we had predates the Savior. Love it. Respect, right? Yes. It's amazing. Okay, so but Hinduism, you know, Hinduism is older than that. I know it is. We have temples that prove it. I know. I know you do. But let's look at language. Because they're intricately connected, and I'm, I'm going to stop with this. We'll go to our last point, which is much shorter. Hinduism is connected um, to the San- Sanskrit, and it's the, it's the codification of their of the Indian language, and it dates back. And I'm using round numbers for your for your sake and mine. Five thousand BC, pretty old, pretty impressive. And it's just the language. It's not the codification of religion or Hinduism. Not the establishing of gods and how to follow them and how to worship them. It's just the language dates back to 5,000 years before Jesus. You know what we just discovered? In Egypt, Hebrew, a Hebrew letter. You know how old it is? <laughs> now, say with me. You can't separate the Hebrew language from the Jewish people. You can't. And you can't separate the Jewish people from Yahweh. You can't. You know how old this letter is in Egypt? 10,000 years old. It doesn't say anything about the Bible or anything like that. This is a letter, but it's Hebrew. It's proof of the Hebrew language, twice as old as India. Give me the one God who said he's the one God first. I'll follow that one. And the evidence, the science, the history, and the philosophy keep pointing to the same God. And it's Yahweh, our Lord Jesus, who sent his Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross that we might be saved. I, my faith is not blind. It sees just fine. It sees just fine. All you have to do is take the time to look. Thank you. We're tired on this. I asked uh, Ron. Ron's not here. He's back in Dallas. We baptized him a few weeks ago. And he said, um, we were, he's Jewish. He was Jewish. And I said, Ron, you re- he read the Bible. He, he's, maybe he's listening today, but it's a great story. But he read the Bible in 100 days and became a Christian at the end of that time. And, uh, and I said, Ron, why didn't you stay with Judaism? You know what his answer was? I did. It leads to Jesus. <laughs> How did you get a master's degree in 100 days? It's like, it's amazing. It was amazing, right? And that's exactly, we cannot again separate the two. Finally, you say, which which religion then has the most evidence for the divine? No religion, except for one, offers us the resurrection. Uh, This is the gravesite of Jesus. I was there, been there a couple times, been inside that room. It's amazing. He's not there, by the way, he's out. Churches used to gather there and worship. It'd be pretty a pretty cool place to have church. No religion's founder has ever beaten death. No religion's followers have ever witnessed a divine event and died for it. Only Christianity, and it's historically true. None of us look at the, none of us look at the Roman persecution of Christianity and be like, ah, I don't know if that really happened. Right? You'd be like, what? Yes, that happened. That's historically accurate. That's the way it went down, right? Even Gladiator had to cut that from the scenes, right? I mean, it happened, right? It was historically proven that disciples died because they saw the risen Christ. And it wasn't a psychology, and it wasn't they were mourning, because it kept on happening for centuries, hundreds of years, until 310 A.D. when Christianity was unleashed again. But before that, you had to choose the polytheism of Romans or the one God of Christianity and Judaism. That's what you had to do. And so we have this proof of, for me, this proof of the resurrection and so I believe that there is a proof of a divine creator. I believe that there's a proof of one surviving true religion. And I believe that there's a proof of the divine. And It's all found in Christianity. So I don't need to be afraid. Fire has just come down and consumed the offering. I don't need to be afraid to talk to anybody about any religion. And I don't need to hate them. I don't need to hate them. This is not about that. If the Bible is all true, then the Bible says I don't hate them. I'm not supposed to. But furthermore, not only that, I can believe that, man, you have been deceived. You've been deceived by something, and it's my heart to have your eyes opened, whether I do it or the Spirit of God does it. But hating you is not going to accomplish that. So we don't hate you. It's like it's like hating a, I'd be like hating a child who went to a really bad math teacher that taught him two plus two equals three. Right? You'd be like, I don't hate you for that. You. You just had a really bad math teacher. Right? And you look at other religions and you say, I don't, I don't need to hate you. You just had a really bad teacher. Let me love you. Let me show you the truth.